G'day and welcome to The Policy Shop, a place to think about public policy. I'm Glenn Davis and today we turn our attention to the media. This morning, the Coalition Joint Party Room uh, agreed with the Cabinet uh, recommendation that legislation for media reform uh, be introduced into the Parliament. Uh, This package will uh, represent uh, the most significant media reform in Australia in a generation. It was back in March when Federal Communications Minister Mitch Fifield announced plans for new laws governing the control and ownership of Australia's media outlets and the provision of new television content in regional Australia. Such laws raise immediate questions about what counts as media and what public interest is being served. Our existing media laws were written 24 years ago when there was no internet, mobile phones or video on demand, a law written before Facebook, YouTube and smartphones. With the benefit of hindsight, these laws were framed just on the eve of a huge disruption of everything that was familiar about the media. So how should public policy grapple with a constantly changing media environment? Can policy keep up with the rate of change? And if a free media is a pillar of democracy, what values should media regulation uphold? To address these challenges, it's a delight to welcome two guests to the studio. Dr. Margaret Simons is a journalist and author and the director of the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne. Welcome, Margaret. Thank you. And Jock Given is Professor of Media and Communication at Melbourne's Swinburne University. Welcome, Jock. Hello. So first to you, Margaret Simons. 24 years is a long time between new media laws, particularly given all of those technological advances that so radically change the environment. Do you think there's a need for change? More fundamentally, why should Canberra be in the business of regulating who owns the media? Mm. Well, to take your first question first, yes, there is a need for change. In an era in which media has converged, in which uh, a newspaper website contains video, in which a television organisation has a website which contains text, um, where radio content, or what we once would have called radio content such as this, um, is available as a podcast, to try and regulate media on the basis of what platform the content is delivered on really doesn't make any sense at all. And that has been the focus of media policy forever, basically, uh, to concentrate on the platform. It's clearly out of date. It's not working in a way that's uh, equitable either for the public or for the owners of media. As to why Canberra should be involved at all, um, historically, and going right back to Robert Menzies and before, the understanding has been that media is a particular kind of thing. It has the capacity to frame the way in which we see the world. Um, It has the capacity to decide whether we have a well-informed population or a poorly informed one. And that is relevant to the way in which our whole system of government and society works. It's not just like making sliced bread or cans of baked beans. And there is a concern for not having too much concentration of power, power in too few hands. So there is a case for regulating who gets to own the media, who gets to decide what we see and hear, how to do it in a way that's consistent with free market principles is the question that various communications ministers have wrestled with, none of them particularly well, in my view. So, Jock Given, what is the traditional role of government in regulating the media? I think we've tended to focus a lot on media as broadcasting. 
So the introduction or the creation of radio as a medium in the 1920s, television, which came to Australia in the 1950s, we tend to think that that's what media is. The, the reality is, of course, we have tended to regulate radio and television broadcasting to a much greater extent than we have the print medium. Uh, so we had laws about ownership, very highly specific laws about ownership of radio and television for a long period of time. Uh, we didn't have the same sorts of uh, highly detailed... And why not? Uh, partly it was a constitutional question that the federal government's power over ownership of, uh, of communications was much clearer. It's not that it is without power in relation to ownership of other kinds of media, but it was just clearer. Um, I think the second thing was that uh, it's a degree of, um, it's the, the, the role of incumbents over time. The print media predated our federal government. Um, broadcast media came along at a time when the media were invented and laws came with them, in a sense. We invented institutions like the ABC to go with this new medium of radio broadcasting. So we were trying to work out what it was, and we decided, Australia, the United States, Canada, all sorts of countries, decided that this thing called radio broadcasting and then television broadcasting was an enormously important thing, and we actually needed a lot of laws about it. So, Margaret, what have been the traditional policy instruments for regulating media? Well, mostly it has been about broadcast media, as Jock says, and, of course, there's another justification for that, which is that the use of the broadcasting spectrum, that's actually a public asset, if you like, a common, a common good, the broadcasting spectrum, and it's been a limited good. You know, you can only broadcast so much. Thanks largely to digital technology, we now have heaps of broadcasting spectrum around. Um, it's no longer a scarce asset. And so really the whole basis on which we have been regulating media, which is by platform, by use of public goods like the broadcasting spectrum, has fallen apart in our hands. And at the same time, the business model, which has supported most journalism, back when I was a journalist at The Age in the 1980s, those pages and pages of classified adverts, who uses classified ads these days when they want to look for a car or a job or a home? There are more efficient ways of doing it, but that revenue no longer flows to supporting journalism. And so there's all sorts, just about every fundamental setting around platform use of the public good of the broadcasting spectrum and the freedom of the press. Well, we've seen the Independent in the UK cease to appear in print form. We'll probably see the Fairfax newspapers go the same way in the next 12 months. So freedom of the press even is actually a dated concept if you take it literally. Perhaps just on the question of spectrum, I just want to maybe disagree with Margaret on the issue of spectrum and, and its uh, sort of lack of scarcity. I, I think what we have learned over the 120-odd years that people have been using radio frequency spectrum for communications, wireless communications, that particular parts of the spectrum, different frequencies, uh, behave in different ways or transmissions on them behave in different ways. So certain frequencies are very good for certain kinds of communication. Other kinds of frequencies are good for other sorts. And, and the spectrum that we've used for television broadcasting has been enormously valuable. Um, it, it was used for television broadcasting and that seemed self-evidently once it began and we saw how much people uh, liked watching the shows, how much advertising revenue was generated. That was self-evidently an important thing. Over time, what we can do with those particular frequencies has expanded. 
um, the process of introducing digital television and then moving free-to-air broadcasting off about half of the total amount of spectrum they had has meant that we've been able to allow new players to introduce mobile broadband services. So the, the very same frequencies that you were watching Channel 7, 9 and 10 on only a few years ago, you're now getting 4G LTE services on your mobile phone supplied by Telstra and Optus and others. And that, I think, has been uh, very important. So so what I think has happened is it's not so much that there is just a, an abundance of spectrum overall, but that the levels of scarcity vary greatly across the whole spectrum. There are still bits of the spectrum that are incredibly valuable and not abundant at all. Margaret, we've talked here about government policy, but there are lots of other players. Mm. Jock has just talked about the networks that have used uh, spectrum. But you've co-authored um, a biography of Kerry Stokes, an mm. autobiography of Kerry Stokes. You've thought a lot about the role of media proprietors. What has been their role in the articulation of law and the consolidation of a set of frameworks? Mm. Well, to quote the departing managing director of the ABC, they have been the emperors and we are living at the end of the age of empire in media. Freedom of the press for those who own one. Uh, freedom of broadcasting for those who have a broadcasting licence. We're living for the first time in human history in an era when anyone with a basic level of computer literacy and an internet connection can publish news and views to the world. And this will change just about everything about how we think about media and indeed all the things media affects, including public life um, and in democracy. Indeed, even academics can talk on podcasts and broadcast to the world. Well, indeed. So, for example, you at this very moment, Glenn, are creating a piece of media content. We are the media in yep. this studio in a way that would not have been possible only five years Go, And so one of the things to think creatively about media policy and how government might contribute to good media policy is to think about how to creatively respond to the fact that universities and our media organisations, the courts, for example, are now putting out their judgments and, the, and live streaming um, parts of court hearings and so on and are looking at doing much more like hiring retired judges to write commentaries on uh, what's going on in the courts. Just about every institution of society is in some sense a media organisation. Now, how might a creative communications minister in a nimble and innovative way to respond to our Prime Minister's favourite words respond to those things? I think that's much more interesting really than this tired old chestnut of regulation by platform. So what is government trying to do in the new legislation? What is the objective here? Well, I think they're trying to remove some manifest aged or dated regulations. So, for example, the, the REACH rule, which prevents the broadcaster from reaching a certain proportion of the population using the airwaves at a time when all of the commercial networks and the ABC are moving to internet delivery. It's really irrelevant. And, and just makes the law sort of slightly laughable, I suppose. So some of it's just a straight up updating. Some of it is about fairness. Um, in the age of Netflix, uh, there's a whole load of, um, of regulations which Australian-based broadcasters have to adhere to, which the international players don't have to. And that also has relevance for things like Australian content regulation. Uh, which isn't explicitly tackled in, in the latest reforms. So it's a mixture of that updating and fairness. But in my view, there is insufficient attention to the stuff that really matters, which is not platform, but content. So we'll come to that. I just mm. want to explore one other aspect of the debate we've just had about these media laws, and that's about regional broadcasting. Mm. Chuck, one of the defences and explanations for government regulation of the media has always been about preserving regional voices and making sure that it's not capital city dominated. Has it achieved that? 
And are these changes going to make a significant difference there? I think it has always been a principle of regulation. Uh, I think over time it has been achieved with decreasing success. Um, I think if you look at the identity of the early radio players, the early television players, if you look at how many newspapers there were at one stage, um, we have many, many less independent country players now in uh, in the media. The, the point is that the tools are always changing. It's about attempting to invent, create, sustain institutions that work with the technology and the audience expectations of today, not simply thinking we've got to try and preserve the newspapers and television stations of old. Let's turn then to the proposed reforms, which the government says will bring media regulation into the digital era. Margaret, you mentioned the REACH rule, which Mm. currently stops any um, one news service getting to more than 75% of Australians, and also the two out of three rule, which stops any one company owning television, newspapers and radio in the same market. Mm. These rules will be changed. Can you tell us how and you can tell us what is government trying to achieve here? Well, basically those um, those limitations on ownership, if you like, are going to be by and large removed. There is still a safeguard, if you like, about the number of voices that you have in any particular media market and there still have to be a certain minimum number of voices. And there's also um, some provisions in competition law which prevent competition in a media market being restricted. But by and large, that's the remaining safeguards for diversity. And as I say, you can see the reason why those laws need to be changed. Um, when a newspaper is delivering video content and so on, it, it really doesn't make much sense to restrict it on the basis of platform on whether they're delivering by print or broadcast or whatever. And so the 75% reach rule is massively outdated when you have an increasing amount of video and audio content being consumed on the internet. Um, and able to be reached by anybody in Australia. It's simply out of date. And having laws of that kind which are out of date just makes brings the law into disrepute. So there is a strong case for change, but it doesn't answer the concerns about whether people, particularly in regional and rural Australia, will be able to find out what's happening in local government, in the courts, um, around agricultural policy, for example, and how it affects them, and so on and so on. That takes people on the ground doing the journalism. So, Jock Given, what will these rule changes mean in your view, particularly for media diversity and for regional Australia? I think, Margaret, it's absolutely right that the 75% reach, reach rule is flying in the face of reality now that two of the commercial networks are transmitting their metropolitan-based services online. They're streaming their television services online. You can watch them in country areas. Uh, so the idea that they're not able to own television affiliates in areas where they can nevertheless get signals online doesn't seem to make terribly much sense. On the other hand, I think the so-called two out of three rule, the, the rule that still says you can you can have any two of three media forms, that is major daily newspapers, commercial television licence, commercial radio licence, I agree absolutely that if we were starting today, we, we might not have that rule. The, the fact is we do, and the result of changing it, I think, will be consolidation, which will not be healthy. Mm. I, I think that if you ask any media organisation, and the reason we're looking at changing the 75% reach rule is that anyone can do anything now. So, so if anyone who has a television licence can, in fact, run an audio service online and publish text online, why do we care about changing rules to allow them to buy radio stations or newspapers? I simply think we we, we might not start where we are today, but the reality is 
changing the two out of three rule will allow consolidation that will not be healthy. And Margaret, from a democratic point of view, what are you expecting to come out of these law changes? Well, I agree with Jock. I think we are going to see more consolidation. Just for example, one of the things that is expected to happen, or some commentators are expecting to happen, is a merger between Fairfax, for example, and Channel 9. Mm-hmm. Um, in regional areas where you have the Channel 9 affiliate um, and Fairfax, why wouldn't you see an amalgamation of the newsrooms of the local rural press newspaper, which is owned by Fairfax, and Channel 9? Fewer journalists on the ground, less reporting. And while there is a sort of complicated point system to try and encourage local content, it's very hard to um, legislate about quality. Um, so local content might include, for example, a journalist based in Sydney doing an interview over video link-up with the mayor without that journalist having any local knowledge about what the issues are that you should be asking the mayor about. Um, you know, this is about content. It's about people on the ground. And what would be great to see is rather than a sort of negative attempt at regulation to look at positive ways of fostering industry collaborations and research into industry, almost as a branch of industry policy, if you like, to try and look at how this really important part of society might be nurtured, how exercises like this one might be fed into the mainstream media, for example. (laughs) We can dream. (laughs) We can dream. Um, How uh, digital startups, which are some of the main contributors to media diversity in Australia at the moment, we actually have more diversity now than we had five years ago in metropolitan areas, largely because we now have things like BuzzFeed, the Daily Mail, the Guardian in Australia, all of which are web-based and simply weren't there a while ago. Wouldn't it be great to see a government actually thinking about how to encourage the goods as well as simply update? Jock, can I take you to one area that I know is close to your heart, and that's sports broadcasting. What are the implications of change to the anti-siphoning list, which determines which major sporting events must be broadcast free to air? It was a very old thorn where uh, the the, the rules have stated for a long time since multi-channel pay TV was introduced uh, that rights to a rather long list of sporting events in Australia, rights to the first release of live programming has to be offered in the first instance to a free-to-air broadcaster. And so it becomes, in a sense, impossible for subscription broadcasters to get exclusive rights if the free-to-air broadcaster wants it. Um, I think that there has been a better public policy rationale for that than a lot of people think that this has been a, a, an important part of programming, an important part of the nature of a society. If these events are important, then people get the opportunity to watch them free. The, the list has been a bit longer than it needs to be. That has been um, perhaps unduly um, helpful to commercial broadcasters. But, but I don't think the rules are, are without a valid public policy premise. The reality now is that sporting organisations are seeing all sorts of ways to take more control of the rights to their events themselves. And I think at one level, it's just an incredibly interesting and dynamic time in, in sports coverage to see the kinds of partnerships that are evolving, how sporting events are using, for example apps on phones and tablets to enable sports broadcasting, the way they are making individual channels available. You can subscribe to a you know tennis television that will deliver you all the tennis in the world without having to subscribe to any other pay TV channel. But, but there is a kind of really, really high stakes dance going on between sporting bodies and media companies as they both work out how much they need each other. And clearly, um, sporting bodies need media companies a lot. 
um, media companies need sporting organisations desperately. So this is The Policy Shop. My guests today are Professor Jock Given from Swinburne University and Professor Margaret Simons from University of Melbourne. Now, Margaret, we've noted that the new laws don't apply to subscription television, to national newspapers, to internet services, to telco providers. A necessary compromise or a fatal compromise? Well, the last comprehensive look at all these issues was the Convergence Review, which um, reported, what, I think about uh, four years ago, and which was really trying to look at uh, media organisations by size and by amount of access to the media market and then try and come up with a regulatory framework that uh, led to a healthier democracy. Now, the Convergence Review went nowhere, and some would say there were good reasons for that, but we really haven't seen any Minister for Communications engage with any of the inquiries that have been done into media policy. Before the Convergence Review, there was a Productivity Commission inquiry, which reported, I think, back in 2001, made a heap of recommendations which were highly relevant and up-to-date for the Times, went nowhere. Australia has had, for a very long while now, pretty poor communications policy, pretty unimaginative communications policy, and often, of course, at the behest of the uh, of the emperors, who perhaps are less powerful now than they were. Um, and I'm sad to see that we don't seem to be getting any change to that. We don't really be, seem to be getting any creative approaches. Is, is part of what's happened, however, that our idea of what media is has expanded? Mm. And, and so although we, we talk about laws that have been in place for 24 years, the Broadcasting Services Act, a lot of laws have been in place and have changed in, in other areas. So we've had lots of change in telecommunications law. We've had lots of change in privacy law. We had lots of change in defamation law. We've had changes to classification and censorship laws. So in, in a sense, this, this little, it's not exactly a pocket, but this field of law, which has been about broadcasting, has been incredibly sensitive. And every time politicians have tried to go near it, it's proved impossible to do much with it, other than on the, the transition to digital television. But quite a lot else has changed in different ways. And, and that's really just, to, to me, it's a sign that what we think of as media is actually a much, much larger game. It, it touches almost everything. It touches the finance industry. It touches the environment. It touches everything these days. And yet the policy instruments open to the Commonwealth, ownership laws, competition policy, funding, spectrum listing, and so on, these haven't changed. They're actually as limited as they always were. Well, I think one of the one of the really important sort of contrasts is to see if if you look at the fate of commercial television networks at the moment. You know, share prices have fallen. These these are businesses that are still big, proud businesses. They get a lot of people watching their shows, but they are nothing like the businesses they were ten or fifteen years ago. Um, but if you consider the level of detail with which the government micromanaged the process of introducing digital television in the early 2000s and the switch over to analogue that happened at the end of 2013, enormous detail, enormous sensitivity, miles of legislation, put that alongside how services like Netflix have arrived, essentially they've just driven straight through the door. And lots and lots of the commercial challenges that commercial television broadcasters are facing have not come from any of the sorts of threats that regulation was was directed at. They, they've actually just come from a whole bunch of over-the-top services mm. that they've been able to do very little about. Yeah, I think I think you know the theme of our times is actually distribution. It's all about distribution, and the people who are best at distributing are winning. Um, and you can see that at almost every level. I mean, why is ISIS a thing? Why are we worried about radicalisation of youth in Australia? Because ISIS is terrific at distributing their propaganda. 
Um, and Netflix is all about distribution. Uh, BuzzFeed is succeeding as a business model, not because everybody goes to the BuzzFeed website to see what they've got today, but because it finds them in their social media feeds and so on. And the ABC, I know, is going to have to look at this as a challenge for the future. Certainly, there's a sort of old rusted on audience who still watch ABC One or ABC Two. But increasingly, the ABC is going to have to adopt the BuzzFeed model and find the audience wherever they may be. And what does that mean for a public broadcaster? I mean, really, this is the sort of creative thinking that we need to be having about how to distribute the content, how to make sure that the content that matters finds its audience. And we'll be taking that question up with Mark Scott when we interview him for the very next podcast in this series. But can I just push you a little on this? Are you suggesting that the growth of international distribution will make national laws largely irrelevant? I think they present a profound challenge to national laws. I wouldn't go so far as to say it makes them irrelevant because it is still possible to control the distribution of some kinds of content. But I think the boundaries between type of content and distribution are becoming increasingly important. And where this matters most is the local. Most news is local. Most international stories play out locally. Most local stories have implications nationally and internationally. And we're not going to have the local people on the ground as trained professional journalists if we keep going the way we are. So let's try and find some new ways to go. Chuck? I think one of the remarkable things about the degree of detail in the regulation of established media and the lack of it for services like Netflix is we think, why have we done this sort of nationally based media? And and it was all about creating distinctive media services. That's what we've been doing in radio and television. It was about Australian content. It was about Australian ownership. All of these things that we thought were really important shared goals. We wanted services that were different from the rest of the world. You look at what is happening with Netflix and the, the sort of consumer response, the, the frustration that Netflix Australia is different from what you get with Netflix in the US. What the consumer pushes for is for services that are absolutely identical all around the world. Uh, and so for Netflix, it's facing a different kind of challenge. It, it is attempting to build a kind of global service, a, a truly seamlessly global service, which is able to carry its content everywhere but it's confronting exactly the same kind of, if you could call it resistance or, or just local distinctiveness everywhere, as it's got to do something to connect with the specific tastes of people in different parts of the world. So I think we're seeing an absolutely fascinating challenge with a new technology, uh, again, testing out the distinctiveness of local tastes around the world. So when now we turn to home, it's interesting to think about the tone of the conversation. Some disappointment in the laws, but also a recognition of the difficulties of framing law in this area. And that's sort of some of the key lessons I draw from this. First, just the limited policy instruments now available to a national government dealing with a global media. The realities of so much of this happening outside Commonwealth influence. The political difficulties of balancing the constituencies, the regional versus the city, the owners versus the audience, uh, the powerful interests at play in any media decisions, and then just the sheer difficulty of technological change and how you anticipate that and write policy that isn't going to become immediately irrelevant or taken out very fast. It seems sometimes, as here, public policy has to make calls amid radical uncertainty and deeply contested terrain, which is probably why an inadequate law survived for 24 years, and this one may well do the same. My thanks to my guest today, Dr. Margaret Simons, the Director of the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne. Thank you. And Jock Given, 
Professor of Media and Communications at Swinburne University of Technology. Thank you. Our next episode of The Policy Shop will be a special collaboration with theconversation.com. As you heard, we'll be joined by outgoing Managing Director of the ABC, Mark Scott, for what's sure to be a lively and insightful conversation about public broadcasting in the contemporary world. I'm Glenn Davis. See you then. The Policy Shop is produced by Owen Hahasi and Heather Jarvis, with audio engineering by Gavin Neighbour and research by Ellie MacDonald. You can find this podcast and read more on this topic at pursuit.unimelb.edu.au. And remember to subscribe to The Policy Shop on iTunes. Copyright University of Melbourne 2016.